Grace. As we're going to dive back into Philippians this morning, I just want to quickly grab two threads from things we sang this morning and tie them together to show you how they fit together and really capture one of the main themes at the heart of this letter of Philippians, starting with what we just sang. In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul is wanting us to think, when, when, I, when I think that God, his son, not sparing, would send him to earth to empty himself, to take the form of a servant, to be made in our likeness, and then his son not sparing um, to bleed and die and take away our sin, that when we think of that, when we try to wrap our minds around the magnitude of the grace of God and the grace of Christ who would put himself in our place, atone for our sins so that we could be, um, have no fear of, of judgment before God. When I think of that, then here's a line from the other song we sang. So, Jesus, if you gave your life to save them, so will I, Right? If you give your life to send, save me and millions of people, Jesus, if you, who are, are, are the ser- master here, I'm the servant, I'm not greater than the master. If the master would give of himself like that in a beautiful display of gracious, self-giving, radical, other-centered love, why would we not want to look like that? Why would we not want to resemble Jesus uh, like that as adopted brothers and sisters in Christ? Why would we not want to be part of this? That's at the heart of this letter. I think of the Philippians. It's clearly the motivation of Paul as a, as a Christian and as a missionary. That's what has moved him to give his life to Christ. Christ, if you would die for me, a former blasphemer, and persecutor of your church and you would show mercy on me, why would I not want to give everything for you and live for for your purposes in the world? And in this letter, Paul's encouraging the Philippians and us as we're listening in to feel the same way. Why would we not want to walk the humble path to exaltation like Jesus? I love that. Last week, Eric doesn't always say the same thing in every service, so I'm not sure if you heard this at 9.30, but at least in one of the services... He pointed out how the Christian life really mirrors what we see in Philippians 2 of Christ, the condescension, the humble, lowly path of Christ is the pathway to his exaltation. And in the same way as we follow him, that's the Christian life. It's leading to exaltation with him forever, but it's by way of the humble path that resembles him. So that's what this letter is about. And here's the thing. We're getting to this passage here this morning, chapter 2, verse 19 through 30, and it could feel to you, as it did to me this last week as I was beginning to look at it, thinking, wow, we have this rich theology in the beginning of 2 of Christ who condescended and now he's exalted and every knee bowing in heaven on earth. And last week, this exhortation, this, this thick passage about sanctification and God being at work in both our wills and our working to, to, to make us like Jesus And all of a sudden now, it could feel just sort of like a Facebook status update. It's just some travel details and just sort of some, some, some details that you sort of skim past. I mean, it's a letter, right? Not everything is important to get to more, you know, the good stuff in chapter three. But even in these travel details... Even in these things that he wants to inform the Philippians of, about Epaphroditus and Timothy, who he's about to send to them one after the other, even in these, Paul is commending to us this this path to exaltation by way of humility. And I want us to see that. So let's read it, pray that God would help us not miss what he has for us here, 
and dive in. Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. You know how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it'll go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come to you also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all, and, he's, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. And so receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Lord, again, the the examples that Paul uh, puts forward here in Timothy and Epaphroditus and even in himself uh, are worthy of our imitation. Um, This is faith worthy of modeling our, 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 our faith after. And it all reflects Jesus, this humble path and our humble Savior. God, I pray this morning, we are not naturally humble. I I am not naturally humble. We are not naturally inclined to count others more significant than ourselves. And if it weren't for your Holy Spirit, I think the the current of our hearts always drifts and pulls toward me first. So this morning, we need your help, God, to, to pull us away from me first and toward Christ first, which means others first. Um, Help us to be people who are at work uh, for one another's um, uh, welfare and and eternal everlasting good to the glory of Jesus. Help us to hear what you have for us in uh, in this passage this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in this very practical little section here, these details about sending Timothy and Epaphroditus uh, and Paul being the one to send them, uh, on a practical level, he's explaining why he's about to first send them Epaphroditus, and a little bit later, just as soon as he finds out what's going to happen as he faces uh, this trial before Caesar um, and testifies before him, then Timothy, and then he says, Lord willing, hopefully he himself will come. Um, But in all these details, um, we actually see Paul commending, again, the very mind of Christ that he's urging the Philippians to to share and to have. So even in the details, uh, he's commending the humble path to us. Notice how this passage is about sending. Look at in verses 19 through 24, the, the, the bits about Timothy. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And he explains why and who Timothy is, but then verse 23, he repeats himself. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it'll go with me. But not just him, in the immediate, you know, as they've received this letter, uh, of this letter to the Philippians from Epaphroditus, it's because he sent Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25. 
I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother. And then in verse 28 again, I'm more eager to send him. So this is all about Paul sending these men and eventually, hope, Lord willing, coming himself and and the reasons for it. And the reasons, again, um, are that they would have a a ministry in the life of the Philippian church that reflects uh, their Savior. I loved a couple weeks ago, Rob Price, the way he put it as he was preaching the first part of chapter two, was that God's uh, heart for his people is that we'd reflect the beauty of his glorious son. That we, uh, in the way we interact with one another, the way we live for one another in the church, that we would reflect the glory, uh, the the beauty of of Jesus, his glorious son. And I think that that's what Paul's holding forward here for us, to see in Timothy. How is Timothy reflecting the beauty of uh, God's glorious son? How is Epaphroditus reflecting the beauty of God's glorious son? And even Paul, in sending both of them, I think is reflecting the beauty of God's glorious son. So let's take each of those, just one at a time starting with Timothy. So he's actually going to send Timothy second, but he talks about Timothy first here in verse 19. And I think um, that in particular, the way that we see Jesus reflected in Timothy is in Timothy's earnestness to live for what Christ died for. Timothy is a man who is earnest to live for the ends for which Christ died. That's the sort of man Timothy has proven himself to be. Look at verse 19 and 20. Paul says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. And he really gives two reasons why. The first one, he says, is so that I may uh, be cheered by news of you. So remember, he's going to send Epaphroditus first with this letter speaking into some of the things that Paul wants to encourage them to continue to grow and to see progress and joy in their faith. And Epaphroditus is no doubt going to play a role in even helping the church um, embrace and, and live out these things that Paul is exhorting. But then later he hopes to send Timothy Timothy, not only to find fruit growing, Lord willing, but also then to be part of the, the fruitful, ongoing fruitful gospel ministry at Philippi, and then at a point to return to Paul and cheer him up by uh, giving him news that God is at work and he is continuing to complete the work he started. But the second reason he's sending is verse 20. Not just to get a report back, but so that Timothy, when he's with them, would prove, show himself to be genuinely concerned for their welfare. He's sending Timothy to be about helping them grow their spiritual well-being, their maturing in Christ. That's why he's sending Timothy. In other words, until Paul can get there in person, the next best thing Paul can do is send Timothy. That's what he says. That's how he looks at it. Look what he says in verse 20. I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. In fact, he says it even more strongly. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. So he's sending Timothy because he, unlike the all, which I want to say a word about in a second, but uniquely, he will be not about his own interests, but the interests of Christ and their welfare. That's why he's sending Timothy to help them mature in Christ. But I just want to say, it's kind of weird. He he seems to throw a lot of other believers under the bus, right? Unlike Timothy, he says, they all seek their own interests, um, not the interests of Christ. 
Um, I have no one like him. It seems strange because in this same letter, he's taught, yes, he's talked about some believers who have taken advantage of the time he's in prison and they're preaching selfishly out of selfish ambition and they're trying to advance their own sort of agenda and, and frustrate and afflict Paul in prison. But he also commended a lot of Christians, a lot of brothers who have grown more confident in the Lord by Paul's imprisonment and they're speaking about Christ more boldly and fearlessly and, and Epaphroditus is with him, you want to say, well, what about Epaphroditus? So here's my answer. I'm not exactly sure because why he says all. It could be because verse 21, uh, 20, he says, I have no one like him. So among those who apparently Paul has at his disposal to send right now, among whoever that group is, Timothy alone um, has the characteristics and the qualifications that make him the man for the job. And so regardless, uh, the main point is this, that Timothy is a Philippians 2-4 man, like Paul is. He's account others more significant than himself, look to the interest of others, walk in the humble path of Jesus sort of man, and that's why he's sending Timothy. Paul had met Timothy, if you're reading in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, Paul gets to the city of Lystra, and there's this young believer. He's already a disciple. And other Christians there commend Timothy as a young believer to Paul, and Paul's impressed enough that Paul decides to invite him along, and Timothy then goes on to be like a son to Paul and a companion in many of his missionary journeys, at times with him, side by side with him, other times basically being the next best thing to Paul, his emissary. He sends him to Corinth to, he, uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, it says, to, to remind them on his behalf of his ways in Christ, just as he's taught them everywhere in every church. He sent Timothy to the Thessalonian church at one point on his behalf to establish and exhort them in the faith. So Timothy is like the next best thing to Paul. He is Paul's, the, the, the son to Paul being a father. And that's why Paul is sending him is to, to, to be about those things for the church of Philippi, to look out uh, and, and show genuine concern for them. So I want to think about what does it mean to genuinely be concerned in the way that Paul's talking about? How will Timothy prove himself to be genuinely concerned for their welfare? Well, look at what he says in verse 21. We see it in, in the contrast of Timothy to, to these other all. He says of Timothy, uh, they, unlike Timothy, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So in other words, to put it positively, Timothy won't seek his own interest. He will seek the interests of Jesus Christ. Which, stop for a minute. Look back at chapter 2, verse 4. We might have expected Paul to say something a little differently there if we think back to him saying, let each of you not look to your own interests only, but rather, the contrast is, to the interests of others, right? But here, instead of him saying, listen, they all seek their own interests, not the interests of others, he doesn't say that. He says they all seek their own interests. Here he says they're not seeking the interests of Christ. So that should make us go, hold on, 2 verse 4 and 2.21, we need to see, read verse 4 in light of verse 21. In other words, to seek Christ's interests is to seek the interests of others, so what are Christ's interests for the Philippians? What does Christ want for the Philippians? Well, let's just flip back and, and kind of review from Philippians as we've got, as it's come to us so far. Let's start with Philippians 1.8. What are the interests of Christ? Well, Paul loves these Corinthians a lot, and he says, 
God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, my affection for you, Philippians, is nothing compared to the affection of Christ Jesus. It's just a reflection. So first and foremost, you know what Christ's interests are? You Philippians. You, not just an agenda and and things that Jesus wants to bring about in you, but you are his interest. And, And we can say that to you, Grace. If you are in Christ, you are his interest, personally. Let's just stop there for a minute. Do you believe that? That God doesn't just love you, that Christ doesn't just love you, but he has affection, great affection. If Paul can say, I yearn for you with great affection of Christ Jesus, that the heart of Christ Jesus for you, he yearns for you with great affection. He likes you. He's not worn worn out by you. He's not fed up with you. He's not regretting dying for you. He's not regretting calling to you, you to himself and putting his Holy Spirit in you. You haven't made him wish he could go back and have a do-over. You are the interest of Christ. And if you would believe that and rest in that, that's where this all starts, first and foremost. Christ's interest for you is that you know that you're his interest. That's what he knew, Paul knew Timothy would remind the Philippian church of, that Paul was reminding the Philippian church of, that our affection for you is just a reflection and an echo of the love of your creator and savior for you. But it's more than that. Go back a couple of verses to verse six. Because of his great affection for you, he wants to complete the good work he began in you and in them. And so from the moment... God opened your eyes to recognize your sin and your need and that Christ is the only Savior and you turned in your heart away from sin toward Christ. That was just the beginning of a good work. And the good work is that he's not only gonna free you from the guilt and the consequence of your sin, but he's gonna free you from the power of sin over you. And by degrees, he's gonna sort of renew the image of the creator in you and make you more and more like Jesus as his adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. And he wants, the picture of this, look at verses nine through 11. Christ's interest for you and for us as churches that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That image has been very powerful for me as we've been in Philippians. I've been working on memorizing some of Philippians and that one phrase in particular has lodged itself in there as a constant reminder. What does Jesus want out of us? He wants lots of fruit. Paul unashamedly says it, not to make us feel guilty and like we can never measure up and we're never good enough because like Eric reminded us in the passage last week, we don't work for our salvation, but we're working out our salvation, right? Right? God is bringing to completion the good work he began in us. And Paul's not ashamed to say that looks like a lot of righteousness, not just a little bit. There's one fruit tree in our backyard right now that's just exploding, and it's our lemon tree. We have a couple of others that didn't do so well this last season. We have an Asian pear tree that gave us like four Asian pears, you know, on this little sort of stick of a tree. Two of them were edible, the other two weren't. But our lemon tree 
It's just crazy. It's like, I'm not good at measuring, 12 feet high maybe. And some of these branches that have gotten up to 12 feet high have so many like grapefruit-sized lemons on them right now that they've bent down. And I realized the other day, we got to pick these things because the branches are about to snap off. I mean, it's just loaded. It's just abounding with lemons. And God is mercifully put that in my backyard to remind me. Every time I look out the window and I see that truth, that that tree I've been thinking of, filled with the fruit of righteousness. He wants our lives and our church to be filled with righteousness. And what will that look like? Well, it looks like a lot of these things that Paul's been piling up in here. It looks like a community of Christians saved by grace, living a gospel-shaped culture. And it looks things like, like, things like this, like we count others more significant than ourselves, both within our church family and outside in our community and to the ends of the earth. It's a community where we, we serve one another. We defer to one another. We stand side by side in unity, even despite all of the, the small stuff that could tear us apart. And it means that we stand fearlessly uh, shoulder to shoulder in the face of a world that's hostile to Christ and we stand for him and we don't bail on our confession of faith and we help one another persevere in Christ and we shine like stars in contrast to a wicked, twisted generation that we live in. All of this is Christ's interests for us. These are the things he died for. These are the things he died to bring about and create and build is this, his, his church with living stones. And these are the things he wants us to live for. This is what Paul says Timothy is living for. When he gets to Philippi, he's gonna be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And what that means is he is gonna be at work to bring about Christ's interests for you. So here, when we understand now to verse four, looking out for the interests of others through the lens of looking out, that means looking out for Christ's interest, it not only means that Christ, looking for Christ's interest means we're looking out for others' interest. Listen, it also means that to look out for the interests of others the way Paul means here is specifically to look out for Christ's interest for others. Not necessarily others' self-interest. Because think about, it. before you were in Christ, before we were in Christ, any of us, none of our self-interests were Christ's interest for us, were they? They were our self-interests. And in mercy, the gospel is Jesus paying for our sin, coming and now inviting us to put down our idols, to turn from self-interest and recognize his interests for us are vastly superior and they can be trusted. And come now, follow me and seek my interests. But initially, the gospel call is an unwelcome one because it's asking us to leave our own self-interests to the extent that it doesn't align with Christ's interest for me. So that means something for us. As we are seeking the interests of others, that means we're seeking Christ's interests for others. And at times, when the others we're seeking Christ's interests for aren't seeking Christ's interests for themselves, that may not be received as love. That may not be welcome at times. Now, we can, we can go about that in a way that makes it unwelcome unnecessarily with not a spirit of gentleness or self-righteousness or whatever. That's not what I mean. But, but looking out for the, self, the Christ interest for others at times might be unwelcome. That's why we, pr- we do this prayerful and we ask for the Spirit to be at work in our work like this for one another's. 
But we need this. Even after I've come to Christ, sin uh, doesn't die quickly or easily. And frequently, week by week, the reason we gather for worship every week is because I frequently get absorbed with my self-interests again or my self-interests don't align with Christ's interest again and we need to get them back into realignment. And that's why we need one another to play this role. What Timothy's gonna be, what Epaphroditus is gonna be, we need to be for one another. This is what it means to live for what Christ died for. for so, so here's a couple of questions. Thinking in, in two directions. First, who do you have in your life, specifically by name, and you're confident they are genuinely concerned for your welfare, that you're, for your everlasting joy, in, in, that Christ's interests are coming about in your life? I mean, broadly, our elder team, that's what we are committed to. We see God has entrusted us with this flock to, to work for the interests of Christ, but we can't know every single person to the same degree of intimacy, and so we need to depend on each other. So are you here but disconnected, and there's no one who specifically is genuinely concerned and at work for Christ's interests being worked out in your life? If not, find some people. If, if so, are you listening to them? Are you really listening to them? Are you following the example that they're setting for you, the faith that, that, that is worthy of imitation? How about the other direction? Who, who are those in your life that you recognize, like Timothy, I'm genuinely concerned for you. Your welfare is, is, is my responsibility. I want to be about uh, seeking Christ's interest for you. That's called discipleship. And our life together, our body life ought to be this web, this network of relationships like this where we are both looking and following the example of the faith that others are setting for us who are working for that on our behalf and we're looking to do that the same for those who are coming along behind us and together collectively we're, we're, we're helping, uh, we're, we're seeing Jesus use us to bring about the completion of the work that he started. So that's the first reflection here, I think, of Jesus in these men, these fallen, sinful, but redeemed men. Timothy looks like Jesus in that he's earnestly living for what Jesus died to bring about. Let's look at Epaphroditus. I think we see Jesus reflected in him a little bit differently. We see it in his willingness to die for what Christ died for. That's what he says. He risked his life. He nearly died for the work of Christ and he risked his life to complete the task that God had called him out and set him apart to do. And he embraced significant risk. He risked his very life. So let's back up here. Look at verse 25. Why did Paul send Epaphroditus first? Why was he eager to get him there before Timothy? Well, it's because verse 27. At one point, on this journey to bring aid uh, and news to Paul, he was deathly ill. He was ill uh, near to death. But it didn't stop him. He didn't get really, really sick and say, you know what, I'm out. I didn't, I didn't, this isn't what I signed up for. He continued on. He risked his life and he made it there. And God, it says uh, in verse, uh, what, 28, had mercy. No, 27. But God had mercy on him and spared him from this illness and healed him apparently. And Paul uh, says this was this great mercy of God. Um, I mean, sorry, I just skipped over some. I don't want to miss it. Hold on. Did I? No. All right, so verse 27. So God had mercy on him. So he was ill, nearly died, but God had mercy, not just on Epaphroditus, it says, but notice it says on Paul. 
He said, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. I love that. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I probably don't need to belabor the mercy that he had on Epaphroditus. It's kind of obvious. He kept him from dying from this horrible illness. But the mercy that God showed to Paul was sparing Paul even greater sorrow. I just want to take a side note here and think about that. There's two things that strike me as beautiful, helpful reminders for us in in this. The mercy God showed Paul and what he says about it. First is this. Here's Paul. He's the to die is gain guy, right? To depart and be with Christ, that's far better. Second only to living and being fruitful labor for Christ. But to die is gain. And lest we think that the guy who says to die is gain... um, is, has this unrealistic, out of touch with reality, I don't care about death, no matter who dies. Here he is, he says, if Epaphroditus had died bringing me news and aid, that would have been sorrow upon sorrow for me. So Paul's not a Ned Flanders here, right? He is realistic. We, these, are, these both we hold. A confident courage in the face of death that the grave isn't the end because of the resurrection. But that doesn't mean that when someone else who I love gains by departing and being with Christ, that that's not a major loss and sorrow for me and for us. So what Paul says here again in just a sentence affirms the rightness of good godly Christian grief over death that maybe doesn't leave until the day that we're with Christ and we're reunited with those we've lost. Second thing in here, in this little side note about God's mercy on Paul, let's not miss that Paul was able to recognize God's mercy and give thanks for it, even though he had a lot of other things that were suffering and trial that he was in the midst of, right? I mean, he's still imprisoned. He's still awaiting this unknown facing Caesar. And yet, even being in a pit like that, he's still able to see and acknowledge and give thanks for the mercies of God. So from prison, he says, ah, he notices, ah, that was merciful. Epaphroditus could have died on the journey, and he would have been with Christ, and that would have been his gain, and I still would have trusted in in God and his mercy, but that little act of mercy, that was a mercy I saw right there, and he gives God credit for it. And I think it's connected to what Eric was preaching about last week with this don't grumble or complain, and the root of that is ingratitude. A, a, a heart attitude that's, that says, uh, I, I want what's coming to me, and if I don't get what's coming to me, I can't be happy. But the opposite says, nothing good is coming to me apart from Christ. It's all mercy. I want to encourage you this morning, if you are in a place where you are struggling and grumbling, and you are in a pit, and right now, you, you don't see anything good I want you to, to encourage you to look around and consider the ways that God's mercy is clearly evident around you. The people God has put in your life or continue to keep in your life. The circumstances that God continues to give to you that you don't deserve but that are good. And looking at those things then, I want to encourage you to fight for these things where the grumbling is happening. And you take these evidences of God's mercy and you pray and you say, God, thank you for your mercy here. Please help me to believe and trust that your mercy is also wrapped up in these things right here that I just want to grumble about. And recognize God's mercy, even in a dark place. All right, so now let's 
track back to hear the main point here of Paul sending Epaphroditus. He wants to get Paul, uh, Epaphroditus back quickly because he had almost died. God had had mercy on him, so now he's alive and healthy again. But here's the thing. The Philippian church, the last news they'd heard was that he was deathly ill. And so they're in suspense wondering what's going to happen to Epaphroditus. And so he wants to send them back quickly so that they can rejoice, it says, um, uh, and receive him in the Lord with all joy. And so he sends Epaphroditus back, um, not only to, to encourage them, but also to relieve Paul in his anxiety. But in that, look at verses 29 and 30. He commends Epaphroditus. He wants to make sure that when Epaphroditus gets back and they're all hugging and rejoicing and we're so glad you didn't die, that Paul wants them not to forget. Listen, receive him in the Lord with all joy. Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. That's worthy of underlining to complete what was lacking in your service to me. If sort of the word to capture Timothy's reflection of Jesus was concern, that he reflected the concern of Christ for others. Epaphroditus reflects the word risk. Risk. Notice, he didn't risk his life in the form of persecution. He didn't almost become a martyr for the sake of Christ. He just got really, really sick with apparently something nasty, trying to get the aid to Paul that he had been sent to, 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 to bring. But he decided, you know what? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go anyway. I'm going to continue on, even if I don't get better from this illness. And he was willing to risk his own life to complete this, this work for Christ that he had been called to do. In other words, when the path of serving Christ got really hard and scary, he didn't, turn, he didn't bail out on it. And Paul commends him for this. I couldn't help, as I'm thinking about Epaphroditus, thinking about Ted and Dana Whitmer, who are Grace partners that we've partnered with for decades, even before I got to Grace. And they serve in Congo. And their last email they just sent this last month, just the subject line will tell you something. The subject line was this, land grab, Congo elections, and Ebola. They, they practice medicine, teach in a seminary, and are evangelizing and church planting in Congo. Land grab refers to land that they own, the Shalom University. They have title to, but that in the last few months, some local powerful officials with armed soldiers have been pressuring them to take some of their land. And as they've been trying to fight over this, it's been getting more and more hostile and more scary. And they wrote and asked us to pray because he said, they said, even though they've got legal documents that are clear, the rule of law is not always assured here, but God is able, they said. But secondly, Ebola has broken out near them. As of their last email, 451 people had died of Ebola nearby, and they said, we're thankful that there has not yet been a case in Bunia, right where they are, but it's close. But they're not leaving. They're not packing up. They are living with a significant level of accepted risk for the greater gain of being used by God to bring the gospel to a dark place. And you know what? They're not just the one set of partners on our list of partners who are doing this. I just made a brief list. This is not uh, complete here. The Lotzes, the Hermans, the Overholts, the Swingles, the Days, the Balarams, Esther Lee. Each of them in different ways are accepting 
risk of illness, illness that their children could contract, um, hostility that might not even be directly for the sake of uh, Christ, but being collateral damage and hostility that just exists in the hard places that they're living. And in each of these cases, they're recognizing there is a greater gain and I'm willing to risk. I'm willing to accept some risk, not foolishly look for risk, but accept risk. And Paul commends uh, him here. In fact, he doesn't just say honor men such as this, but later in chapter three, verse 17, Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. I think Epaphroditus is one of those. Walking in the example he had in Paul. And we need to keep our eyes on them and say, what does it look for us? What risks are we willing to accept in the course of proclaiming Christ? We're standing publicly for him in an increasingly hostile world and culture. What risks are you willing to accept moving toward other people um, for the sake of Christ's interests, even when that's unwelcome? I think that we are easily addicted to comfort and ease and are, are prone to just want life to be about uh, risk avoidance and risk management and have as minimal risk. But Paul is commending risk here for the sake of Christ. Lord, give us grace to have and the resolve to be able to say the same. I'm willing to risk for the sake of being used by Christ in the things he calls me to. Last thing is really just brief, is I want to point out Paul. I don't think Paul meant to put himself necessarily forward as an example in here. He's putting Timothy forward, putting Epaphroditus forward. But I think in Paul, in his sending of these two men, it's just another reflection of the, the, the humble love of Christ. It looks like his savior. It's sort of behind the scenes of this whole passage. We see it in his eagerness again to sacrifice his blessing to bless the Philippians. Think about these two men that he's sending, especially if it's true that maybe of those who he has at his disposal, they're all seeking their own interests. And, but he's got Timothy, and Timothy is like a son to him. Great affection for him. Deep intimacy, and what a support he must have been. What a huge hole, no doubt, it would have been when he sent Timothy off to Philippi after already sending Epaphroditus. But he says, I'm eager to send him to you soon. I'm not holding out for my own sake. I want to get him to you. And look at what he says about Epaphroditus in verse 25. This isn't just some other Christian. He says, Epaphroditus is my brother. When I, as I'm in prison here, he is family to me in Christ. And he's my fellow worker. And he's my fellow soldier. He's in the battle together with me for joy and to run this course and honor Christ whether I live or whether I die. And he's been your messenger and even minister to my need. And yet, he says, but I'm all the more eager to send him back to you so that you're not distressed over what had happened to him and so that he can be at work for your, your interest in Christ. It's beautiful. That looks just like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and stepped down so that we might be blessed through his sacrifice. And here's an echo of that in Paul saying, I, I'm happy to send. They're a great blessing to me, don't get me wrong, but, uh, but I, I want to send them to you because I want them to be a great blessing to you. All right, we need to pray uh, this passage uh, here uh, into our hearts this morning.
And so in a minute, I want to give you a couple of minutes to just be quiet and, and pray, talk to the Lord about this. But um, a couple of ways I want to suggest that we could pray this passage here uh, into our, our lives here this morning. One, as we think about these, these, these examples of Christ-likeness that God wants to see reflected in us, whether it's genuine concern for others or a willingness to risk, face, accept risk for Christ or generous self-sacrifice, you know, behind all of those or on the other side of all of those are heart attitudes we need to repent of that we're prone to. So rather than concern for others, we're all inclined naturally to be self-interested and put our interests before everyone else's. And maybe you need to talk to the Lord this morning and confess that and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to not be so self-absorbed and self-consumed. Behind uh, the opposite of risk for Christ is, is fear and avoidance of any risk and being timid and even ashamed of the gospel and of Christ for the sake of not costing you anything. And maybe you need to repent of that this morning and ask God to give you boldness. The opposite of generous self-sacrifice, willingness to take your blessing and send that to others because you see that as more necessary. Well, the flip side of that is stinginess and, and an instinct to hoard and to keep blessing for myself and not to, to pass that on, but to hold tightly and you need to say, Lord, help loosen my grip on the, the blessings you've given me. Maybe that's money that you have. Maybe that's your children who are approaching adulthood and you want to hold on to them like this and you need to, want to be, you've got to make you generous to be willing to share and release them into the world to be used for him, even if that means that they're, they, they move away from you in ways. Another way you could pray, though, hopefully is just to adore Jesus here this morning. Uh, last thing I want to say, Jesus, I remember saying, um, let your light shine before men so that they might see your good works, see your reflection of Christ, but glorify your Father who is in heaven and Jesus, his Son. Um, and so maybe just spending some time saying, Lord, thank you. Being in this passage has reminded me of the magnitude of what you've done for me, Jesus, and continue to do. So let's pray, take a couple minutes, and I'll wrap us up and we'll close with a hymn. Jesus, we thank you for that you have great affection for us. Don't let us forget that this morning. Thank you that that affection is steadfast, that your steadfast love endures forever and it's with us today, it's the same today uh, and tomorrow and forever. And Jesus, we pray that you would help us, you would help us to look more like you, to grow in our resemblance. Give us uh, a mindset like yours, give us hearts like yours uh, for our church, for our community, for our world. And I pray the result of this would be that you would use grace, you'd be free to shine as, as guides uh, and pointers of people uh, to Jesus um, for, for their eternal good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.